0: Before we start, please be aware that today's show contains frank discussions of childhood sexual abuse, and as such, listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Bad Gays, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gaming and in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we profile a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality informed their infamy. We want to complicate gay history by talking
1: about evil people and complicated people instead of just heroes. We're focusing on cis men because cis men are definitionally the most bad, and we're asking why we don't remember our villains as well as our heroes. So last week we talked about a Weimar-era gay magazine publisher who provided space for lesbians and trans people to express themselves, but also ended up writing favourably about fascists. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh?
0: One thing that's been noticeable in the series so far, especially of our British subjects such as T. Lawrence and Anthony Blunt, is that the vectors and valences of sexuality of our subjects are really clearly flavoured by a whole body of assumptions about class and behaviour. Today's subject is fascinating for me for the way his life crossed class society at a time where a lot of those assumptions were being broken down, and when Britain was changing from a very rigid class-based society to a society which was really rethinking its attitudes both towards homosexuality and towards class. In fact, he really encapsulates many of the most important aspects of the 1950s and 60s, and as a result, he's become a sort of icon of that era in England, although in a way that really diminishes the severity of his crimes. And that's telling in itself, as he's become the icon of that era, which the British have deeply romanticised as a golden age to avoid really examining what lies behind the myths of Englishness, class and masculinity. So today we're going to be looking at the British gangster, Ronnie Cray. So let me take you back. The East End, 1933. I see it now. It's still desperately poor a working-class neighbourhood which had suffered from overcrowding and disease for hundreds of years, although patrician reformers had tried to improve conditions, and the Communist Party was on the rise at the time, demanding housing, work and revolution. But there was another power on the streets of London at the same time, gangs. These street gangs were organised crime groups who ran various forms of illicit businesses, and they had their own territories. Groups like the Aldgate mob, the Bessarabian Tigers, the Bethnal Green mob, the Hoxton mob, Camden Town's Broad Mob, the Elephant and Castle Mob, Islington Mob, King's Cross Mob, the Odysseans, West End Boys, and the Whitechapel Mob. These groups often emerge from specific immigrant communities, Russian or Eastern European Jews, Maltese, Irish and Italians especially. Hmm. And so in the middle of this, in the old East End in Hoxton, Charles Cray, who's a clothing dealer, and his wife, Violet, welcomed to the world their two twin boys, who they named Ronald and Reginald and they became known as Ronnie and Reggie. The Crays were already known as something of a rough family who lived near the margins of the law, but also they lived in an era of extreme deprivation, and crime could be a matter of survival. Their father, Charles, would later become a deserter during the Second World War. And the two lads took up boxing, emulating their maternal grandfather, and they were actually both quite good. Ronnie, who had a more unpredictable temperament, was a, a bit of a slugger, But Reggie was seen as a better bet to have a professional fighting career. As teenagers, they formed their own street gang and they were in and out of trouble throughout their teens. They left school at 15, which was quite common for working class youth at the time, and they tried their hand at honest work as well as concentrating on their boxing careers. Ronnie worked at the old Gates Fish Market for a while, which is down near Tower Tower Bridge in the Tower of London, and also as a roofer. But in 1952, this all changed. They were called up for their compulsory national service to the Royal Fusiliers. What is a Fusilier, for those of us who are not from the UK? Um, It's a type of soldier. Okay. <laughs> um, The Royal Fusiliers is like a regiment. Okay. It's the name of a regiment, I think, yeah. Um, It was never going to work, though. Uh, they left actually during the signing, in, uh, signing up process, and then once they had been signed up, they were repeatedly absconded and went to AWOL. And after Ronnie punched a policeman who was trying to apprehend them, they were arrested and imprisoned for a short while in the Tower of London, and they were actually amongst the last prisoners ever held in the Tower. They were court-martialed and found guilty, and their time in military prison was marked by a brutality. For example, they threw uh, their latrine over one prison guard and and, uh, an urn of hot tea over, over another, and they burnt their bedding and handcuffed guards to radiators, and eventually they beat up a screw and escaped. Anyway, they were recaptured, but because of this behaviour, they were given a dishonourable discharge from the army. Uh, This criminal record dashed their hopes of their boxing career. And so back in the East End, they turned seriously to the task of building a criminal empire. Uh, Ronnie was actually involved in a fight with the Watney Street Gang outside the Britannia pub in Shadwell in East London, which is now a fried chicken shop. And uh, in the fight, he stabbed a man called Terry Martin, who was one of the Watney Gang and so a tit-for-tat retaliation began and uh, a fight outside the artichoke pub on Stepney Way, he actually stabbed somebody with a bayonet. Yeah. And so following this, he was convicted of grievous bodily harm and then later firearms offences and served three years in jail. And really this was a pattern that started to emerge in, in their crime life. Reggie was a sort of smarter operator while Ronnie really struggled to contain what seemed to be a pathological urge for violence. And just to remind our listeners,
1: um, Ronnie is the bad gay that we're talking about, and Reggie is his brother.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the twins rebuilt their criminal career on that pattern. Before the Artichoke pub attack, they'd been offering security services to a rundown snooker, a snooker club in Mile End called The Regal. That sounds suspiciously to me like an offer of protection that you can't really refuse. Yeah, their early career was really built around protection rackets. Um, so they were, they, they, they were running this protection racket at the Regal and then eventually they bought the Regal out and Reggie refurbished it and turned the business right around. Uh, meanwhile, Ronnie took on a Maltese gang who were trying to extort protection money from them by attacking them with cutlasses, which are <laughs> those big swords that <laughs> pirates use. Anyway, um, And then through violence, threats, arson, etc., they began to acquire more and more properties in the East End. Um, By 1960, Ronnie was back inside in jail for running a protection racket when Reggie was approached by the notorious West London slum landlord known as Peter Rackman, Rackmanism is um, a euphemism in the UK for slum landlordism, now in fact based on this guy's behaviour. Landlords are great, aren't they? (laughs) Anyway, he offered them a lease on... um, on this gambling club in West London. Uh, And this was just the beginning of the move from just being yet another pair of sort of East End gangsters to becoming West End national celebrities and eventually legends. It's not really sure now whether the deal was extorted from Rackman or not, but either way, the craze took over, and for three years they ran the club and it turned into a popular hotspot. It was frequented by gamblers and artists like Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon. And meanwhile, downstairs, there was another club called the Cellar Club, which was a lesbian bar. And was it known to the kind of art world people and the high society people
1: who are going to this club that it's owned by these notorious gangsters and that's kind of part of the charm, or is this something they're trying to keep hidden? That
0: does become part of their identity yeah, later. Like, they, they, they become... Um, yeah, it becomes an exciting part of the romance of going to a, a Cray Club. Ooh. Um, anyway, the, the, the debts that they were accrued by their customers, also allowed Ronnie to start extorting wealth and fav- favours off them. Um, there was one man that in, in particular called David Litvinov, and he was a sort of film industry fixer within the the, the crime world, the monde. Uh, he owed £3,000 to the club, which was obviously a lot in the early 60s, and Ronnie wrote it off for the remainder of the lease of his flat, which he was allowed to live in, but Ronnie would visit, and then exclusive rights to, to Litvinov's boyfriend, a young man called Bobby Buckley. I'm sorry, exclusive rights to his boyfriend? He basically said, um, I'll write off your debt if you give me your boyfriend. It's a tale as old as time. It's very romantic. Uh, <laughs> so Litvinov became someone who could actually procure young men for, for Ronnie. And both him and Buckley became regulars within Ronnie's clique. And this was kind of the start of a uh, vice ring that Ronnie began to run. So they were gathering more and more property throughout the West Ends. And as you were saying, they became sort of these celebrities and um, they had this charm to, to them, this sense of danger. And uh, they started to get more and more famous people coming to their clubs, including people like Barbara Windsor, Judy Garland and <gasps> Frank Sinatra.
1: Judy doesn't get gayer
0: than that. Yeah. So this we're talking here about um, the early 60s, sort of 63, 64.
1: And when you say vice ring, um, what exactly is going on and what is the kind of legal and social environment in which all of that is occurring?
0: Well, we're in a period in the UK of what's regarded as a period of liberalisation. Um, there was a new Labour government who was seen as very progressive, Uh, And there was a Labour Home Secretary called Roy Jenkins. And over the past 10 years, he'd had this whole slew of um, change in social policy. So abortion law and divorce law was relaxed. Capital punishment was abolished. Um, Roy Jenkins decided not to inflict corporal punishment on prisoners. There was also the end of national service, which obviously they'd uh, been forced to do. And there was also, importantly, the abolition of theatre censorship, um, before the 1960s, everything that went that was performed on the British stage had to pass a censor called mm-hmm. the Lord Chamberlain, and that was scrapped, which led to a real liberalisation in culture in general. As you got the satire boom, which started off as live satire and then became things like Private Eye. So yeah, there was this this whole liberalisation that went from the sort of mid or the end of the 1950s to the end of the 1960s uh, that came in obviously with the baby baby boomer generation. And part of that reform, of course, was the decriminalisation of homosexuality, which was first sort of suggested in the Wolfenden Report in 1957, which I think we've talked about before. And it was then decriminalised under quite strict terms. Uh, had to happen in private premises, behind a locked door, between two consenting adults over the age of 25, um, and procurement and flirting and cruising were much harshly much more harshly cracked down on but yeah there was this sort of liberalization attitudes towards homosexuality at the same time Hm. so in a way this is sort of like
1: the accommodation that gets suggested in 1929 in Germany that we talked about in the last episode right where um, the law would have been relaxed for men over an age of consent that was higher than the heterosexual age of consent but uh, accompanied by harsher penalties for intergenerational contact and for sex work?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's really a double-edged sword. And in fact, the Wolfenden Report was um, had two subjects, one of which was homosexuality and another was prostitution. Uh, yeah, and the, the whole thing was passed with this, this sort of twin argument, one of which was a sort of liberal argument, which is what people do in their privacy of their own home is none of, our, none of the business of the state. But also it was this idea that... Um, there were two sorts of forms of homosexuality. There was the invert, who was the born gay, who was sick, who should be pitied. And then there was the pervert, who was just a man of loose morals, who could be persuaded through money, cajoling, opportunity, etc., to be sort of situationally gay. And does that have something to do with a class distinction? Yeah, there is a class dynamic within that. The idea is that the uh, the perverts are more likely to be these working-class men, and that ties in again to this sort of casual sex industry that was happening at the time, and that the um, the inverts could be offered this sort of pitiful uh, deal where, look, you just keep it behind closed doors, you know, with others of your type, but don't go out there and start perverting other people. So it was a, almost an attempt to quarantine uh, homosexuality. And to quarantine it around...
1: Uh model that was thought to be more bourgeois, thought to be more upper class.
0: Private property, exactly. You couldn't do it if you shared a flat with somebody, for example, you had to own a property, the doors had to be locked, there couldn't be anyone else in the in the building at the same time. So it's great if you
1: have a manor house, but if you're a normal person living in an apartment building, it doesn't actually help you all that much.
0: Absolutely. And the way one of the ways we can tell that actually this was part of a, a sort of policy towards quarantining homosexuality was the fact that actually in the immediate aftermath of sort of 10 or 15 years after the passing of the 67 law, um, we had the anniversary two years ago and it was, it was celebrated as periods of liberalization. But actually in that 10 or 15 year period afterwards, the prosecutions for gay sex offenses between consenting men actually went up quite considerably because the police started to really crack down on cruising and cottaging and these sort of sex practices and also raiding clubs, et cetera, hmm. et cetera. So speaking of clubs, what's going on with our boys Ronnie and Reggie? Well, they're moving up in the world. Um, And they're consciously moving up in the world. They want to hang out with a better class of people. When they're there, they invite lords to take part in the gambling club, even disreputable lords, but to them, they're lords. Yeah, and why
1: not hang out with lords and Judy Garland instead of hanging out with the uh, shit-poor gangs from
0: the streets of East London? Sure, except this whole obsession with... Higher classes, in the end, nearly broke the craze empire and brought it crashing down around them. Because in 1964, the Sunday Mirror, a newspaper, ran a headline which said, Peer and a Gangster Yard Probe. Translation, please. A peer is a member of the House of Lords, um, a gangster, you know, and the Yard, Yards mean Scotland Yard, which was the uh, headquarters of the Metropolitan Police. All right. And in this article, it alleged that a prominent peer who wasn't named was in a sexual relationship with a prominent gangster who also wasn't named. But it was quite clear to those in the know that they were talking about Ronnie Cray and the Conservative peer, Lord Boothby. Uh, Homosexuality was still illegal at this time, wouldn't be decriminalised for another three years. And so as a result, Boothby threatened to sue the Sunday Mirror. And uh, Boothby was Conservative, but with the help of the Labour Prime Minister's lawyer, um, the Sunday Mirror backed down, they sacked its editor and they received a payoff of £40,000, huge amount of money in those days, and that effectively silenced all the other newspapers. Cray and Boothby were friends, were close friends, in fact, at this point, but they were not lovers and were probably never lovers. Instead, uh, Cray was procuring rent boys for Boothby. He was organising sex parties and orgies for the peer and also for the Labour MP, Tom Dry- Dryberg, um, according to Dryberg's biographer, Francis Ween, at the Craze flat, quote, rough but compliant East End lads were served like so many canapes. <laughs> according to an informant reporting to the security services at a time about Leslie Holt, who was uh, an East End cat burglar, Boyfriend of Boothby and actually hosted a lot of these um, parties at his flat in East London.
1: So, did this secretly gay Tory peer have any boyfriends or friends who weren't like burglars or notorious
0: gangsters, or what the hell was going on with this guy? Well, he's into trade. Mm. I mean, this yeah, this is part of this class dynamic, you know. Anyway, according according to this um, informant for the security services talking about Leslie Holt, this boyfriend, he says, quotes. Boothby has used, been using him for a long time. He has given him expensive cars, and they've been to the, they've even been to the opera together a couple of times, which is rather bold. They are genuinely attached. This is no fly-by-night affair. The report continued. Boothby is a kinky fellow and likes to meet odd people, and Ronnie obviously wants to meet people of good social standing. He having the odd background he's got, and of course, both are queers. Leslie never suggested that there was any villainous association between the two, and they are not likely to be linked by queer attraction for each other. Both are hunters of young men. (laughs) (laughs) As part of this, um, there are not so far-fetched allegations that this is actually these were were, um, relations of a paedophilic nature. This was actually a paedophile ring, and this ties ties into ongoing dark rumours about paedophile rings in the highest echelons of British society. One of the hardest things, I think, when studying
1: gay history and queer history is to think through the very different understandings in the 19th and first part of the 20th century, really until very recently, about the kind of meaning and nature of intergenerational sex and how that maps onto identities, and how that maps onto how people think about themselves and think about each other. So there are a lot of people for whom sex with 15, 16, 17-year-old boys, as heterosexuals at that time, uh, heterosexual men, were having sex with 15, 16, 17-year-old women, and that was considered to be part of attraction to adult people. And now, obviously, um, and probably correctly we have a different understanding of what ages of consent are and how uh, people can or cannot consent at different ages and what an age difference means in terms of power relationships Um, and so I think it's important to kind of note this even though it's incredibly uncomfortable to talk about and even though it raises a lot of our deepest fears about a um, the abuse and rape of children which is horrifying and b the blood libel against gay people that we're all pedophiles
0: yeah i think i think this is a good example to talk about it in some ways because this would have been seen probably within certain as- circles of their society that are me- moving in of perhaps uh certain upper class aspects as-, as part of a male adult sexuality um i think a lot of people at the time would have written this down quite clearly as abusive and perverted, they'd probably have regarded it as. But I think it I think it's clear from this sort of relationship that um it it's seen as part of they probably conceived it as part of a valid part of their sexuality, and yet that's because they didn't care that it was an abusive relationship. Right. Um they were not people who cared about the autonomy of other people's bodies in the slightest. Right.
1: And you know, a lot of the wealthy men um, at this time who are having sex with 15, 16, 17 year old women are also not particularly concerned about the health or the bodily autonomy of the women they're having sex with so no, it's they, not a gay yeah. thing, it's the idea that kind of a certain class of man to which the crazes aspire and which Lord Boothby is part just have this kind of right over the bodies of other people which is uh, profoundly horrifying yeah, I couldn't agree more which to me points to the need to be really precise with the language that we use to talk about these crimes Well, that took a really heavy detour, but I think one that we really needed to take in order to kind of talk through a very complicated
0: and difficult issue. I agree. So going back to um, Ronnie Cray and Lord Boothby, why was it that a Labour prime minister's lawyer got involved with a Conservative peers case? Well, the reason is that Harold Wilson, the Labour prime minister at the time, was well aware of Tom Dryberg's involvement and with an election to be held soon, um, that Labour was uncertain, very uncertain about winning. He really couldn't afford the scandal. And at the same time, the Tories, the Conservative Party, were in the same position. And so soon after the Profumo affair, which was a sex scandal that had basically helped to bring down the previous government. And just to remind our
1: listeners, uh, Tom Dryberg is the Labour MP who is involved in these orgies um, with young men that are being set up by Cray at his flat.
0: Yes um so basically uh, there was a cover-up the police were told to remove the pressures from the craze as a result um also two backbench Tory MPs have actually already informed the party whips that who are the um internal discipline of the political parties in the UK that Dryberg and Boothby had both been seen importuning young men at the dog tracks, or dog racing tracks, and also hanging out with the craze. So the issue went away. But I think that really does sum up this sort of nature of the British establishment at the time, which was these things were all against the law. They were prosecuting working and middle-class men for these crimes the whole time, crimes such as consensual gay sex behind closed doors. And yet at the same time, they were untouchable in this sort of environment.
1: Right, and they're having orgies with people who are certainly not above the 25 age of consent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe not above a modern uh, age of consent either. And um, it reminds me a lot, actually, of our conversation about Anthony Blunt, where arresting any one person would, like, you know, knock
0: down this whole house of cards yeah. and bring everyone else down with him. And everyone knew within that establishment. For example, Winston Churchill said of Tom Dryberg... Tom Dryberg is the sort of person who gives sodomy a bad name.
1: <laughs>
0: and um, Boothby himself actually said of Dryberg, um, Tom Dryberg once told me that sex was only enjoyable with someone you had never met before and would never meet again. Oh, God. And there was a class element to Dryberg's desire. He was really into trade and working class men. In fact, he's probably someone we could return to in hopefully a later series because he's um, a, f- a fascinating and complex Bas gay. Anyway, the issue went away, um, and it was a sort of prosperous time for the Krays. Um, There was um, this great quote from Ronnie Cray's autobiography, in fact. Um, They were the best years of our lives. They called them the swinging 60s. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones were the rulers of pop music. Carnaby Street ruled the fashion world, and me and my brother ruled London. We were fucking untouchable. Hmm. So one of the biggest problems for the Craze wasn't the police, but was actually the Richardson gang, who were a rival organised crime group who were based in South London, and they were known for viciously torturing people to achieve their dominance in the city. And on Christmas Day 1965, at a party at the Astor Club in Mayfair, a member of the Richardson gang called George Cornell, um, walked up to Ronnie and called him a fat puff. Ronnie took offence and a fight ensued, um, Ronnie is alleged to have claimed on another occasion that he, uh, he said, I'm a homosexual, but I'm not a puff. Would you please do the voice, Hugh? I'm a homosexual, but I'm not a puff. Thank you. Uh, Ronnie was also, it's important to note, suffering from early signs of paranoid schizophrenia at this time. And of course we don't mean to imply that there's any connection between paranoid schizophrenia
1: and being a violent, awful, murderous, assholy person, it's just a
0: part of his part of who he was and part of his life story. Yeah. In March of the following year, so three months later, um, an enormous gunfight broke out in a club in Catford in South London between an associate of the Craze and the Richardson gang. And as a result, nearly all the Richardson gang were either hospitalised or arrested. But George Cornell, the one who called Ronnie a fat puff, Uh, He wasn't actually in attendance. So the next day, Cornell visited one of the hospitalised gang members at the Royal London Hospital, which is in Whitechapel. After seeing him, he stopped at the Blind Beggar Pub, which is on Whitechapel Road, which, uh, as anyone who's lived in London will know, is um, right on the Craze Territory, um, right in the East End. It was less than a mile from his house, in fact, and he was drinking in another pub nearby, and when he heard that Cornell was on his patch, he drove to the pub with an associate, walked in, and shot Cornell from point-blank range in the head. Cornell's last words were said to be, "'Well, look what the cat dragged in!' Despite the pub being on a busy road, and it was the middle of the evening, and it was full of people, nobody saw the crime, and so Cray was never put on trial for the murder."
1: As in nobody saw the crime, or as in nobody quote-unquote saw the
0: crime? Quote-unquote saw the crime. All right. Which gives you a good indication of the nature of how the Craze ran East London. In other words, if anyone had said anything, they would have found themselves in a rather unpleasant situation. Absolutely. Another significant murder was the brutal stabbing of Jack the Hat McVitie in 1968. He was a member of the firm who'd um, failed to complete a contract for a murder, uh, that the twins had given him, and this was actually quite a turning point for some because a lot of his gang members other gang members felt that killing a member of their own gang uh, who they didn 't really feel deserved to die was was out of order, and they 'd also murdered a fellow gang member who they 'd helped to free from prison on the grounds that his erratic behavior after he'd been freed had become risky to the gang anyway, back to the police uh, during his whole sixties. A man uh, called Inspector Reed, known as Nipper, Nipper Reed,
1: Hmm.
0: had been attempting to bring the twins to justice, but he was thwarted in 64 by the Boothby affair and then the subsequent political pressure. In 1967, following the murder of Cornell, he again tried to catch Ronnie, but he came up against this total refusal to cooperate by the East End population, either out of fear or loyalty to the twins. However, on the basis of all the evidence he'd collected, the Met decided to arrest the entire gang and hope to bring some of the members on side. So they arrested Ronnie, Reggie and 15 other members of the firm on the 8th of May 1968. While they were in prison, a plan was hatched for three of the gang members to take the fall for each of those murders respectively. But one of those gang members decided to turn. He cooperated with the police and the evidence he provided was enough to prosecute uh, Ronnie and Reggie for the murder of McVitie. However, they still needed evidence for the murder of Cornell um, and eventually they managed to persuade the barmaid to testify by giving her a new identity. Convicting them of murder and sentencing them to 30 years without parole, the judge stated, In my view, society has earned a rest from your activities. Uh, Ronnie served his first 11 years in HMP Parkhurst, but in 1979 he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and as a result he was confined to Broadmoor High Security Psychiatric Hospital for the rest of his life. He married twice while he was in prison, and occasionally there he identified as bisexual, although in an interview from prison he compared himself to the British colonialist and soldier Gordon of Khartoum. Quote, Gordon was like me, homosexual, and he met his death like a man. When it's time for me to go, I hope I do the same. He died in 1995, aged 61. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors, and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell, and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style,
1: we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are
0: essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod.
1: And Saying Nice Things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. That's an incredible story, Hugh, and I think the way that you framed it at the beginning as being about class is what is immediately the most interesting to me, because you've got a few things going on. You've got somebody who, on the one hand, is very self-consciously identifying as not a poof, which in some sense, connects to that pervert versus invert thing I think you were talking about earlier, at least in my head, where he's sort of self-consciously identifying as this working class kind of pervert figure who is not ashamed, who's not you know, going to be at home, who's not going to be drawing back, who's going to be sort of actively procuring and looking for people and bringing people into the culture. But then at the same time, he's somebody who um, is incredibly kind of class ambitious and these brothers... Um, rise in part because they're so good at and so driven to associate with people who are from, quote-unquote, above their station.
0: Yeah, I think the not-a-puff comment is is really illuminating. And yeah, I think it's, for him, probably something about showing that he can perform his working-class form of masculinity um, exceptionally like he's not weak that that's when he says i'm a homosexual not a puff it means i'm not weak um that he's a real man and i think that's that's something that has this class dimension as well and it's interesting too when you compare that
1: to this kind of um hypermasculinist gay uh identity or hypermasculinist um you know male loving male identity of someone like reem or someone Um, in the sort of Adolf der eigene circle, which is also there in many cases associated with this model of of virile older man and a younger receptive partner.
0: Yeah. I think there's this aspect where um, his ability to be openly gay is actually evidence for him of his power in that he lives in a homophobic society where both socially and legally it's unacceptable to be gay and yet he's so untouchable you know he's, he 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 as he says we're fucking untouchable um and a sign of that is that he he can be open be openly gay and no one says a word about him, about it to him the only person who did say a word about it to him ended up with a bullet in his head so when you say openly gay there's
1: that one article in The Sunday Mirror, which implies that he and Boothby are lovers but doesn't name them. Um, In other media accounts, is he being described as
0: a homosexual, either openly or in sort of coded ways? As far as I've seen in contemporary accounts, no. But within the community that he was existed in and as as a sort of open secret, yes. Um, He clearly didn't hide his homosexuality in public. And what ended up happening to his brother? also imprisoned at the same time, and he stayed in HMP Parkhurst, um, and he died in 2005 years later. And I remember both their funerals, actually, and it's it, it was a huge East End affair. They became romanticised as almost folk heroes um, or folk bandits or something afterwards, and people still talk in, in, in incredibly fond tones about it, about them, um, so much so that it's now like a bit of a cliché or a stereotype where they say, you know, like, oh, they'll... You know they only hurt their own. You know you could leave your door unlocked on a crook crazer around. You know they kept this place clean. They were sort of seen as like, in in and often in a racialized terms because now obviously like the the racial demographic or the ethnic demographic of their uh, the area that they controlled has now changed, and so you know they people look back on it as a as a sort of racialized golden age of the East End, Um and I think it's really important. Uh, because they've been glamorized in that way and glamorized in numerous films about them and um, books, there's just endless books, sort of hagiographies of them, that they were clearly horrendous bullies, violent, murderous, awful, awful people. And that that seems to me like really important to stress because because people, they're lightheartedly taken as folk heroes in a certain way. So, Hugh, um, I think we may have just answered our own question
1: already, but are we going to say Ronnie Cray, bad gay or not bad gay? I think a bad gay. I think a pretty atrocious gay, and I think one whose history both contains uh, in itself an enormous amount of interesting stuff about um, racecraft and class and sexuality And uh, also, I think, the reception uh, of his history uh, and the way that his history has been remembered contains a lot of interesting stuff about that. And hopefully with this, um, we can start to fight against that. Um, These are not people who should in any way be glamorized, even if we did laugh now and again at some of the more ridiculous exploits of the uh, violent, awful British elite, which thankfully no longer runs that country and everything's going great over there right now. <laughs> so uh, what are some places that people could learn more if they wanted to read about the craze that maybe aren't these kind of hagiographic sources
0: that you mentioned? Well, yeah, it is hard to um, steer through the the reams and reams of, of, of um, schlock that have been written about them, glamorizing them. I mean, it's not it's it's Part of that genre, but it's still, for obvious reasons, uh, worth going to, which is his autobiography, My Story, which tells his side of it. Um, and then one of the main sort of uh, critical writers on the craze is uh, John Pearson, and he wrote a book called The Profession of Violence, and another one called Notorious, The Immortal Legend of the Cray Twins. Um, there's also a great Guardian long read by Duncan Campbell called The Selling of the Craze, How Two Mediocre Criminals Created Their Own Legend, which really covers some of that stuff we were just talking about and at the end, about how they managed to glamorise themselves and what their glamorization meant for people in the UK. Great. Well, um,
1: if you like what you're hearing on this show, uh, please visit our Patreon to support us, and you've heard how to do that earlier in the show. You can follow us on Twitter, uh, at Bad Pod. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ben BenWritesThings.
0: And you can follow me on Twitter, at, at Hugh Lemmy. Thanks so much. See you next week. Music